0: Hey M4Edge listeners, thanks for being curious. Michael here, and I hope you're enjoying our mini-series on mobility. If you're listening to our episodes in order, by now you'll have heard Israel Duanis of Fleetonomy and Shai Suzanne of Waycare. Coming up soon will be Sampo Hietanen of Global Mass, makers of the WIM app. But this episode is a break from that mini series and it's a return to Ricky's reports. Ricky Butch, our friend and former colleague, who has been building a startup called Loctricity, that's a play on local and electricity. It's a distributed energy uh, digital solution. Um, Ricky's had a few different ideas around what this company is and does, and we've kind of been with him as he's been wrestling with it. This particular episode is interesting. Ricky reports from a conference he's he's attended um, as a consultant to the World Bank, where in addition to some learnings about the global mini grid uh, space, uh, he's also come up with a brand new idea, and we talk with him about how this might either intersect with electricity or potentially you know, divert some of his mental energy and time from electricity. We talk about subsidization of electricity in Africa and subsidization of water in California for 30 minutes. it's a pretty wide-ranging and interesting discussion, and we hope you enjoy it. If you've been enjoying M4Edge in general, please give us a shout out on social media in one way or another. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts, share the episodes, share the series with friends, and help us spread the word for now here's the show ricky butch welcome back to ricky's reports from the edge and welcome back to the states we know you were traveling so tell us where you
1: were thank you michael marco for having me again um it, it definitely is good to be back i was actually in ghana uh, a few weeks ago as part of uh, some consulting work that i'm doing for the world bank and uh, we just had a mini grid symposium there with um several regulators and uh, private sector participants and and other stakeholders uh, throughout the sub-saharan african region so what what
0: happens at a mini grid symposium what 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 actually takes place and what gets done
1: well i will say that unlike Prior symposiums, this one was a lot more hands-on and interactive. Generally with these types of events, it's often people presenting ideas or concepts in a very passive fashion. Um, and to the organizers' credits, um, they decided that this time they would actually have a much more engaging format with the, in particular, with the local regulators. And so we had folks from across the, the Ghanaian electricity sector. You had regulators and 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 ministry folks and uh, people from the utility and distribution companies, um, all engaged in this discussion on whether mini grids were a viable solution to plug the remaining gap in, in energy access that currently exists in Ghana. So right now the country has a pretty high electrification electrification rate, second only to South Africa, I believe, in in Africa overall. Uh, it's sub-Saharan Africa, excuse me, and. Uh, there's this question of, does the government spend on grid extension or are there other viable alternatives to provide the same level of service that extending the grid would provide to these communities? And so the hypothesis is that mini grids, which are smaller scale systems, they're isolated, but they can provide 24 seven power, uh, are a better option. And, but whether that, how that fits into the larger regulatory construct in Ghana was I think um, quite, a, quite an illuminating discussion.
2: So was there a consensus at the end? Uh, does it boil down to yes, mini grids can be the answer, but a bunch of regulatory and institutional issues need to be sorted out first?
1: Basically, <laughs> which is which is the answer, pretty much anywhere you look in the global world. <laughs> the challenge with with Ghana is that that the I would say that the zeitgeist around mini grids has really been focusing around the private sector and allowing these independent. Entities to come in, own and operate mini grids. Ghana is a is a state run um, has a state run view around electricity, and so there is a national utility that provides energy. And so there was this question of can you allow? What is the best way to actually enable the mini grids to come in? Is it to allow a private sector developer to come develop and then sell to the utility? Should the utility do it in conjunction with the private developer? Um, how are the community members engaged? when this happens. Um, so I think, I think really it was more a question of what is the, the role of the state? And of course then that next leads to the question of how, do you, how much do you charge people for this electricity? Because Ghana has a national tariff. And if you were to charge that national tariff without subsidies, uh, the mini grid would not be viable. And so there's a gap that now has to be plugged. And so there's a, a big discussion around how do you plug that gap? Does the utility basically swallow the, the losses on that mini grid, because the social benefit is there around providing access, or is there some type of subsidy that's offered to the private developer? Um, are there other alternatives? So that was really, I think, the discussion around how does the how does the state get involved um, in a country where the state runs the electricity system, and uh, how do you plug the gap between what is an economically viable tariff for the mini grid and what the state currently charges for electricity? Interesting. So. You were there as a consultant to the bank. Did you manage
0: to also do some work on Electricity, either sort of, you know, making contacts? First of all, is is the company still called Electricity? Um, <laughs>
1: it is. It is. It is still called Electricity. Awesome. And so
0: think, uh, were you able to make some contacts and sort of feel out the business climate there.
1: I was. I was. But you know, going back to something that I, I discovered early on in this process, um, particularly when trying to, to raise some some early money to spend some time on it, um, you know, investors were pretty clear that that it's important to try and find a use case at home first for this type of technology before branching out overseas. And so as much as I think there is a need for uh, a company like electricity to provide a turnkey mini grid solution with a, a digital platform that optimizes operation launching in Ghana is probably not the right first step. It's finding the, the use case here in the U S um, proving up the concept and then, and then branching out from there. Um, Marco did
0: you did you notice how slickly Ricky set his uh, his value prop there there is a need for a digital solution that optimizes operations i think that i think that was the language you you, you didn't used to have that so cleanly um, spelled out. So.
2: I was going to say, it's clear that Rick is growing into the role it's really more comfortable with the speech. You've
1: been practicing. <laughs> there, there is much development that needs to happen yet on my elevator pitch, but it's, it's certainly gone a little bit better. I do, find, I do find interesting ways to drop little nuggets here and there.
0: That's good. Before we started recording, you, you were mentioning something else that kind of came up during this conference. You want to tell us a little bit more about this new... Venture or operation you're you're beginning to form?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let me preface this by by saying that there is, as we all know, there's a pretty enormous challenge that still remains in the energy access space. We have, you know, nearly a billion people without access to electricity. By various estimates, um, the belief is that mini grids can probably address half of that that, that you know addressable pop, addressable market segment. So say around 500 million people would potentially get access to electricity through the deployment of mini grids. But when we look at what the current pipeline is for future deployments, um, you know, unfortunately it is not nearly enough. And um, for those sites that are potentially gonna get developed, there's actually only a handful of developers that are doing so. And, and this is probably true for the energy access space more broadly when we think about private sector participants. You know, unfortunately, we just haven't seen a lot of local industry in these countries really come up. Um, it's still been a handful of, let's say, internationally backed companies with international founders who are trying to deploy these, these energy access solutions. And, you know, frankly, that's just not enough for where we need to be by 2030, which is what the sustainable energy for all goal is to provide universal access by, by 2030. And so just to give a few numbers, right now we've got about 19,000 mini grids in the world, um, which is a a much higher number than I think a lot of folks expected. Um, And that I think speaks to the maturity of of this concept. This is not something that's new, it's been out there. Um, But those mini grids that have been in operation haven't utilized the latest technology that we're seeing, particularly around solar and storage. And so we're now seeing what we are terming the rise of third generation mini grids, which is the solar energy storage diesel or gas hybrid um, that can come in and combine, you know, traditional dispatchable fossil with renewable power and provide 24 seven electricity that can support productive uses. So people can actually build businesses and generate income off of the electricity that is now available. But, when we think about the future prospects of these third generation mini grids, um, right now, you know, by, again, by various estimates, we think there's something around 7,500 planned mini grids. Um, and to reach sustainable energy for all goals by 2030, we need to deploy an additional 200,000 mini grids. Um, so there's an enormous gap between where we are today and where we would need to be by 2030. And, and like I mentioned, I think, Unfortunately, just given the construct of of the private sector in this space, there's just a handful of companies um, that simply just do not have the ability to scale as quickly as we need them to.
0: Let me make sure I get these numbers right. So there are 19,000 existing.
1: 19,000 existing mini-grids. And
0: and to reach half of the remaining people without electricity, you need to
1: increase that by an order of magnitude. In order of several. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So where we need to go from basically, you know, a handful of mini grids a year in a country uh, to thousands of mini grids a year in a, in a country.
0: That's a tall order.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, It's one that we have not done a great job at mobilizing resources around. And so one of the things that just struck me was, you know, we have this, these, these handful of companies that are trying to, offer the service, but simply don't have the ability to scale. We have not seen a lot of local representation in these, these high energy uh, energy access deficit countries. And so is there something that we can do beyond the availability of capital to try and accelerate this pace of deployment? Uh, And so I had a chance to speak with several different stakeholders in the energy access slash mini grid space. Um, those from the World Bank, as well as other development banks like the African Development Bank and the Asian Development Bank, the UN Foundation, which has some um, growing efforts around energy access, and then the IEEE, which has been quite active also in, in fostering early-stage entrepreneurs uh, around energy access, uh, the National Energy Laboratory, which I know Michael's your old stomping ground. Um, and so, you know, everyone is sort of echoed this need to provide some type of mechanism to reduce barriers to entry for local participants in the energy access space. How, do we, how can we foster a, an ecosystem of, of local companies that understand the market, that understand the local context, that can quickly engage with communities that require an energy solution and deploy these mini grids? And so now what we're, we're thinking of is a, a socially oriented, open source platform Uh, that would host training material, um, provide a, a forum for conversation, um, perhaps even host open source designs of mini grids, um, that, uh, you know, anyone can access around the world. Um, and the idea is if we can make this information readily available, because it's not new, it doesn't have to necessarily be developed. And there's a lot of information, a lot of design information that isn't necessarily proprietary that we can publish, uh you know, can we post this, make it publicly available and allow people in these countries to freely access it, understand how to use it, uh, and essentially build mini grid companies. And so that that you know, that has generated quite a bit of interest, I think, from, from some of the key participants. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because when I sort of thought about electricity early on, it was very much around these packaged hybrid systems that were focused on remote commercial industrial applications to provide 24 seven power. And the company wouldn't necessarily be built on the hardware. It would be built on the software that would help control that system and connect it to loads to optimize how that energy was being used. And in some sense, this effort actually would potentially accelerate what electricity would do, which is, you know, deploy these, these, uh, turnkey packaged hybrid systems, because the goal of this potentially new effort is to simply publish the designs of these systems uh, to make it open source, to allow people to easily replicate and modify um, so that it's, it's essentially a built to print. You can take this over to the the local fabricator and say, you know, I need to, here's the bill of materials. I need to buy this stuff and put it in this design. Um, And uh, you know, the idea is to allow for these types of companies to make the right links and, Acquire the right tools and techniques to you know build that system and and uh, quickly deploy it in these areas that that need this type of uh, solution um, and you know I could certainly see a, a a potential electricity evolution basically just using that same exact system design um, but maybe deploying it here in the u s for for different applications
0: so so many different questions um, I guess the the first one is just sort of specific to the to the idea, which I think is great. But is this something that could be hosted on a uh, MOOC, you know, massive uh, open online course platform like um, edX, right? You know, there are a dozen of them now, but I, I know that those are actually useful for people trying to, you know, upskill or learn or whatever in developing countries. They, they do use MOOCs. And I'm wondering if that's a, if that's maybe the right platform for you to to push, this, to push this kind of stuff, this kind of
1: material out. That, that's a great point, Michael. That's something I, I actually necessarily hadn't entertained. Um, when, we, when, we, when we thought about the training and development piece of this equation, the focus initially has been on developing competencies for different personas in the mini-grid space. So, for example, we think there's going to be someone who operates the mini-grid, someone who designs it, someone who maintains it. And for each of these three personas, we would probably need to have tailored content around what he or she would need to know. But before that, the question is, well, what what does a proficient technician or operator or designer uh, require to, to know? And I think that's where we are in this initial step of trying to determine the competencies that would be required and then developing the training material that would reinforce those competencies. And to your point, Michael, I think there certainly could be multiple delivery mechanisms once that content has been developed. There's actually a fair amount of information already there in the mini-grid space. It's just highly fragmented. And I think that makes it just very complicated to navigate for a lot of these folks. Have you thought, Ricky,
2: Of sorry to interrupt, but I was wondering if you've thought of uh, the best partnerships to accelerate the development of the learning material because it strikes me that the, there is always material out there, but there are probably more efficient and targeted ways of both developing the material, keeping it updated as the technology evolves, and pushing it out there in a way that is most easily absorbable.
1: It is an enormous challenge and a very open question for us still, Marco. I don't think we have... Uh, we have not yet we 're not yet in a position to really test the ideas that we have on how to quickly disseminate and um, make sure that this information is reaching uh, the hands of folks who normally don 't uh, access this information because ultimately our goal is to open the funnel of potential developers and you know while mini grid symposiums are great ways to put this information out there, unfortunately, they can sometimes be a bit of an echo chamber because people self select to attend these events they tend to know about mini grids. And it doesn't really allow us to expand the pipeline of, of potential developers. And so we have not yet cracked that nut, I think, on, on how to open up the doors to allow more different, different categories of potential developers or potential entrepreneurs to come in. Um, certainly, we think you know, universities and others could be interesting test benches for us to try and deploy some of this stuff. Um, I don't think in general, the space has used social media very well to try and reach a new category of, of followers. And so that may be one where we try and relook at what those social media strategies could look like. And uh, you know, the other, the other way around this too, is this, we tie the donor money to using some of this information. So one of some of the discussions we've had with the World Bank and others has been, as they deploy this money, can they make it contingent on people going through the training material and, and uh, you know, going, using these designs that have been vetted by, technical committees and use that as, as a way to further the word for, for this type of, of solution. Um, and it may be in all the above strategy. We just uh, are early, early days still. And, and unfortunately don't have a good answer to that question mark, which I think is ultimately <laughs> the, 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 you know, how we actually hit the, the, uh, the head of the nail.
0: So you mentioned in describing what, what this thing is, you mentioned that it could be, of use to electricity somehow um, you know, you, you could theoretically use the same kinds of, of diagrams, but you're, you're also standing up this other organization, which is potentially time consuming. So if you're talking to a funder, how do you describe this to them? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to build this company um, and I've got this set of ideas and I've got this, this newly polished value prop, but I'm also building a, not-for-profit something uh, with, with lots, of, lots of partners and cat herding. And so what do, you, what do you tell them to convince them that this is worth the additional time investment?
1: Well, well there's two framings that I, I am now using. To investors here, the idea is, yes, this type of solution certainly has some applicability in the U.S., but look at the global scale at which it has some viability. And for the international donors – it's actually, you know, what this technology can be used in emerging markets, but can also be used in developed markets for various applications. And in both cases, the story is this is not a niche technology that's used for, you know, energy access alone. This is potentially the the door opener to a larger play around distributed energy. And you know, particularly as we're experiencing hot, hot summer and more volatile weather, um, this need for something more local, something more controllable, something that can um, operate independently of the large grid, if there's an issue with the larger grid, I think is, is becoming uh, more and more um, important in a lot of discussions. And and actually, that actually is a perfect segue to to one of the things I also wanted to just chat with you both about is, is over the last few weeks, as, of, as, as I've been trying to figure out the right first use case for electricity, I'd mentioned to you both last time that I was focused initially on agriculture because I thought we're talking remote commercial operation, cost is a big issue, um, and there is an increasing focus around sustainability. And so you know, can those three come together and, and deploy and, and use that as a use case for these hybrid solar solutions that can power remote agricultural operations, um, You know, help farmers with their cost and also uh, improve sustainability overall. The thing I've learned after having several conversations with folks in the ag space is that while energy is important, it is not the number one priority for a lot of farmers. Um, at least for folks here in California, it's water and pesticides. And energy, generally speaking, is not a huge issue. Um, it's, not a, it's not a pain point. Um, it's a nice to have. If, if something that helps them reduce energy costs, great, but they're not going to go out of their way to actually develop it. Um, the other issue I've found with energy in the ag space is land use. So again, particularly here in California, we've seen a shift towards higher value crops like, like almonds. Uh, and away from the lower value crops now in that case you want to plant every acre you can with uh, with almond trees and not have to dedicate any to uh, solar farms and and so that has also been a bit of a challenge Um, and you know frankly farmers haven't necessarily seen a dramatic increase in electricity costs nor have they seen a uh, a substantial increase in unreliability and so again it just isn't it isn't at the forefront Um, and I think this, this harkens back to a a conversation that I had actually with one of my mentors at GE several years ago, when we were talking about, uh, new product ideas. And he said, you always want to find the painkiller, not the vitamin. And if it's not going to address a significant issue, then there's probably not going to be a lot of uptake. Uh, and I feel like, you know, I've come to the conclusion, at least now that, that, uh, you know, these types of distributed energy solutions in the ag space are vitamins. Uh, they're not painkillers, and so that has forced me to look at potentially other applications that may be a better uh, first use case for this type of solution here in the U.S.
0: I like that. I like that line: the vitamins and painkillers. They're definitely painkillers in some parts of the world.
1: Yes, yes, in in particularly these these high energy access deficit countries. Yeah that have struggled to build out energy infrastructure, I think these small scale solutions can certainly play a role. The challenge of course, when I'm looking at this, trying to build electricity is that investors will, are reluctant to fund companies that are focused entirely on these types of markets. So a lot of the private sector companies in the energy access space use a lot of donor money. Um, Still, actually they've they've in some cases built teams that are quite adept at um, accessing donor funds because that remains, I think, the primary form of capital in, in, in that particular segment.
2: It's interesting. It's, uh, it's not limited to you in the sense that I remember discussions we had at G and the frustration around the fact that, uh, on the one hand, you would like to leverage, especially long term investment money, into big infrastructure projects in emerging markets, which are going to have a very high rate of return. But something that some of our colleagues at G were saying was yeah, it's frustrating because a lot of the Pension funds, insurance companies, people with the money would rather they would like to invest invest in infrastructure, but they prefer to invest in new parking garages in San Francisco or LA rather than in power generation in Africa. And it's uh, this kind of differential risk assessment uh, that you're encountering now. It's the same. Uh, yeah.
1: And and uh, Marco, just to add to that, would be now we talk about selling electricity to people who generally have trouble affording that electricity and now you're adding a tremendous amount of risk on the economic viability solutions. And so that's still a hurdle that I think the energy access space has yet to, to really hurdle.
0: You were talking earlier about using every available acre of land to plant um, almonds. And, you know, I was thinking there, I read something recently about um, planting shade Tolerant crops, or even um, you know, ecological helpers like you know, butterfly bushes or whatever they're called, under um, under solar panels on fields. So there's there's something you can still use the fields, but it occurred to me you could also maybe design something. You Electricity could maybe design something where you've got this essentially movable. Um, set of of panels, you know, maybe that's the maybe that's the thing, right? P- crops, cropland still has to lie fallow every every few years. There's a crop, yeah. and so there's always, you know, whatever it is, a third of the land that is not planted in any given year.
2: There's also something though, which is interesting and speaks to the the issue of uh, market and policy distortions in these environments. Because, for example, I when Ricky was saying that. Uh, for agriculture, electricity is not a pain point, water is, and I would say, heck yes, because almond trees suck up a gigantic amount of water, and then the policy reaction is to instruct the restaurant to deny me a glass of water to have with my cheeseburger, while agriculture sucks up in California, enormous amounts of water for almonds and rice, which subsidized are crazy, subsidized the... water, exactly, which are crazy crops to raise in a climate like California. So there's a policy distortion there that should actually change the economics of the land use, which at some point might well come.
0: Uh, yeah, one can only hope.
1: <laughs> and, and, and speaking of of policy distortions, Marco, one of the Again, one of the challenges I I found looking at energy in the ag space is that there are actually a good number of incentives, but they focus primarily around dairy farms and using biogas for power generation. So you can certainly potentially get a solar system subsidized to just some small degree. But if you want to put a, a biogas system at a dairy farm, the state will chip in $3 million in grants to allow you to do that. And maybe that's because of the political importance of that constituency, maybe it's because historically that's been the case um, and uh, you know again, just one of the challenges of was hoping to, to to tap into some state support for deploying renewables in, in the egg space and you know yes, that's there, but it's targeted almost entirely at the dairy industry
0: so okay you've got you've got these two ventures, and you might find a way to sort of make them make them work for each other in a way. Do you think that by having these open source documents out there, you undermine some of whatever you hope to be the secret sauce for electricity. though? Is it, are you giving away the golden key?
1: To me, I think it is, it's it's, the differentiation comes not from the hardware itself, but from the services that are built on top of that, that hardware. The analogy I, I like to draw is, is Linux and Android. You know, Android is built off of the Linux kernel, which is open source. So anyone can access that. But then Google took that and then built an experience around it that allowed other developers to come in and provide services. And I think that is where the differentiation will ultimately be. And this is true, I think, in in energy probably more broadly. Solar panels and and battery systems, yes, there are some technical parameters that make one vendor perhaps a little bit different or better than another. But generally speaking, lithium-ion batteries and photovoltaic panels work the same way. And... When we talk about at scale, um, you know, it becomes more of a cost play in a lot of instances. And so as an energy supplier, I think the value is going to accrue to those who can understand how best to orchestrate those assets and not necessarily produce those assets. And so for this open source initiative that that we're looking at on the mini grid space, it's really around breaking down the doors to that system design in the first place. Just providing the single line diagrams, the build materials, something, anything that, that someone would need to actually go and deploy a containerized system. But that in and of itself may not be where the differentiation lies in the long term. It's going to be, what is the software that gets wrapped around that, that uh, can provide some additional services? And while there is, to some degree, I think, a, a need to provide open source software to provide a basic level of functionality to make sure that the system can operate and, and not hurt someone. Um, I think, you know, beyond that, we hope that the private sector will, will actually use that as a way to, as a stepping stool, to basically provide you know, more catered and targeted services. And so when I think about electricity in that, in that discussion sphere, it's really gonna build potentially build off of that availability of, of hardware and open source software and provide more custom and uh, comprehensive experience to customers. Got it, okay, that sounds good. Uh, Marco, anything else for Ricky?
2: Oh, I think that was an awesome update. Lots going on. It's fascinating to me, Ricky, to see the, inter- the intersection. So, how building electricity also forces you to look around, get involved in parallel initiatives, which I guess uh, to some extent stretches you even more, but is necessary to sharpen your ideas and identify new potential opportunities.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you both for the opportunity to share that. Yeah. Anything else
0: you wanted to, to leave us with before we call it a day?
1: I, I hopefully, there'll be more to come in the coming weeks.
0: Okay. Look forward to it. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Ricky.
1: Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Marco. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Ricky's reports. Please remember to check out the mobility mini series that we're in the middle of. And thanks for listening to Macro, Micro, Michael, Marco, and Startups at the Edge.